This is an ABC podcast. I can't think of anything more exciting and meaningful than trying to be better tomorrow than I am today. You know, a lot of people see an uncomfortable situation as a threat to their competence or to their self-esteem. I think we're much better off when we try to look at it as a challenge. This is Adam Grant. He's an organisational psychologist, Wharton professor at the University of Pennsylvania and author of the book, Hidden Potential. I think when it comes to unlocking hidden potential, a great habit that is something I learned in diving, which is I loved as a diver hitting the water and popping out and then being told, hey, that was a seven, that was a four and a half, so that I could calibrate. And I, I knew with a high score, I needed to make minor adjustments. With a low score, I had to make major changes. So I've gotten into the same habit now. Every time I give a speech, I get off stage and I ask for a zero to 10 score from my hosts and from any audience members that I run into. And no matter what they say, whether they give me an eight and a half or a two, my only question is, how can I get closer to 10? How much potential am I leaving on the table here? Hello, I'm Lisa Leong. And on this episode of This Working Life, how to unlock your hidden potential from wanting to do something to actually doing it and doing it well. Adam just mentioned his diving career, but it wasn't something he was exactly built for. Well, my teammates called me Frankenstein. (laughs) Because I I didn't bend my knees when I walked. And I couldn't touch my toes without bending my knees. So did not have the flexibility or grace or rhythm that you'd expect in a diver. Actually, a coach said that his grandmother could jump higher than me. Oh, wow. So not talented would be the short answer. So you've got this kind of idea of not talented. And let's go a little bit deeper on this, because when we talk about potential, usually we think of potential as you're talented or you're not. You take the talent and you work hard at it and then you turn it into something. So what what are you sort of seeing here? What was the difference here that your coach saw in you too? You know, honestly, Lisa, I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea what he saw in me. I think that he understood something actually in all seriousness that I didn't learn until much later, which is it turns out natural talent is less important in the long run in most domains than motivation. And he saw in me somebody who had a lot of physical limitations, but a tremendous amount of psychological commitment. And I think he he looked at that and said, all right, you're starting from a pretty low point, but you have a lot of room for growth. So let's let's see how far we can take this. And I remember him telling me on the first day of practice uh, at the end, uh, I asked basically for an assessment. Like, Am I going to make the team? And my coach, Eric Best, told me there was bad news and he went through all my limitations. <laughs> I was like, is there, I'm sorry, is there good news? And he said, yes, I believe that if if you really concentrate on this sport and you throw yourself into it, By the time you finish high school, you could be a state finalist. And that just lit a fire under me. And I thought, he knows a lot more about diving than I do. And he sees a great deal of potential in me that I don't see in myself. But what do I know? Let's go for it. Why did you decide to bring your very well-known research zeal and curiosity to this topic of hidden potential, Adam? I I think we're, we're constantly underestimating ourselves and other people in part because of this bias toward natural talent. And, you know, if something is difficult or we're not good at it at first, we think, this is not for me. I'm not cut out for this skill. And we do this to other people too. We count them out. And I think it's a travesty to watch people squander their potential. 
I'm curious about this because often, you know, especially at the moment, there's a strengths-based approach where we look at, you know, what are you really, really good at? And you go and you work harder on that. But actually, I feel like reading your book, you are making the case for working on our weaknesses. Isn't it potentially a waste of effort? I don't think so. I think, first of all, your weaknesses today could become your strengths tomorrow. Secondly, even if they're not, weaknesses can be Achilles heels that hold you back in major ways. So, I, you know, I don't, I don't have any problem with working on our strengths. I think we should all try to figure out what they are and try to harness them. But if you ignore your weaknesses altogether and you don't work on them, then you're missing out on a lot of hidden potential that never really gets tapped. And you basically end up only staying in your comfort zone as opposed to taking on new challenges and expanding your comfort zone. And another interesting concept that you have is this idea of not glorifying ambition, but actually looking towards aspiration. Why is that? There's a philosopher, Agnes Callard, who's written about this, that ambition is what you want to achieve. It's a result. Whereas aspiration is who you want to become. It's a dream. And I think the the danger of ambition is that it focuses us too much on performance, which is not something we can fully control. Your performance might suffer because somebody judges you negatively or somebody outperforms you. Whereas if we think about aspiration, we can measure that in terms of progress. And at the end of the day, you're in the driver's seat when it comes to how much you grow. And I think if we were to, to measure ourselves much more in terms of, am I making progress toward who I want to become? We'd, I guess we'd have more agency in our lives. Most of us are obsessed with our career skills. And I wonder what would happen if we worked as hard on our character as we did our careers. Adam, we might gloss over our character skills in our work because I think it's our personality traits that get all the attention. I think it does too, and I think that's a mistake because your personality is not your destiny. It's your tendency. So some people are lucky to be born with a natural inclination toward having a lot of willpower or being able to stay stay calm under pressure. Your character skills are your capacity to override those instincts in order to live by your values. So, you know, I think about the person who manages to keep their cool when the stakes are high because they don't want to let their coach down. I think about the person who is, you know, normally tempted to procrastinate, but sets a goal and really cares about it and then ends up starting early and finishing ahead of schedule and being extra prepared. And at some level, character skills are learned in kindergarten, but I don't think we spend enough time on them. And such an important point that actually your character comes out when times are tough, when you're under pressure. That's when we can truly see where character skills come into play. Yeah, I think that's where they're most important and also most visible. I think about personality is the way you show up on a typical day, whereas character is who you are on a hard day when the odds are against you. Hello, I'm Ali. I'm the founder of WorkPants and we're a career counselling organisation that specialises in supporting new parents. I turned 40 this year and it was a real moment for me to, to look back and think about what I'd done. And in doing so, I thought, have I pushed hard enough? Have I fought hard enough for the things that really matter to me? And the only way that I could achieve a lot of those things, add value to the world, And the only way that I was going to make WorkPants a reality was to tap into my hidden potential. 
It's not a very comfortable space at times, but it's so necessary when you've got something important that you want to do. I think one of the greatest things that you say gets in the way of building these skills is getting comfortable with discomfort. And I mean, it is (laughs) something that is very hard to sit with. So you've experienced this. I know that um, you describe yourself as an introvert, so... I am an introvert. Guilty as charged. <laughs> so maybe public speaking at the start didn't feel comfortable, but of course now you're an amazing public speaker. So can you talk us through the process that you went through with sitting in this discomfort and what that meant for character skills? Well, thank you. That's, that's kind of you to say. I Not only am I an introvert, I was also extremely shy. And I remember after one of my early lectures a student had written that I was so nervous I was causing the whole audience to shake in their seats. Oh, no. So what did I do? I think what most people do when, you know, they're faced... For me, this is a conflict between my personality and my principles. My personality said, get out of the public eye. Stay away from the spotlight. This is not your comfort zone. My principles said, I love sharing knowledge. I'm passionate about this material. And I want to pay forward to students what I was lucky to gain from my professors. So what do I do? I think a little bit about, all right, I need to, you know, do some warm up. I need to, like, I'll start teaching a small seminar. Uh, Maybe I'll have a few students. I'll get a little bit more comfortable in front of a small group. And then over time, I can, yeah, I can hopefully get there. And I guess if if I'd had a therapist, they would have called that systematic desensitization. (laughs) Yeah. You know, sort of dip, dip your foot in the, in the shallow end. I didn't think that was going to lead to enough growth. I wanted to make much more rapid progress. So what do I do? I volunteer to give guest lectures for my friends' classes. Hundreds of students. I'm on stage, just me for an hour. Lisa, I don't know why my friends agreed to this. <laughs> I was terrified I was going to tank their teaching ratings, although maybe by contrast with me, they would, they would look even better because I was so uncomfortable. <laughs> but... As I started giving these guest lectures, something really interesting happened. I stopped freaking out because I had put myself in the most extreme version of the situation that I was afraid of, and nothing terrible happened. I had lots of notes on how I could improve. I was not any good, but I wasn't as bad as I feared. And I think that that willingness to embrace a little bit of discomfort or even deliberately amplify discomfort and make more mistakes is a great way to, to learn more and learn faster. Is that the character skill in itself, the sitting with discomfort? Yeah, it is. It, it takes determination and courage to put yourself in a situation that might embarrass you at worst or at best might feel extremely awkward. But it's a lot easier to do when you're being, you know, for me, being false to my personality in order to be true to my values. Let's go deeper into some of your practices. So you do some life checkups. How do they help you reach your full potential, Adam? That's a good question. That's a very good question. I think of a checkup in life similar to a checkup like going to the dentist every year, even if it seems like nothing is wrong. I think we need to do that with the major choices in our lives because it's, it's too easy to get stuck on autopilot or to be comfortable on a path and not question it. For me, what that means is about once a year, sometimes twice a year, I'll sit down and ask, are my values different today than they were last time I did this exercise? And if the answer is no, okay, let's now look at how I'm spending my time. Is that in sync with my values? If the answer is yes, 
first I need to rethink my values and then make adjustments accordingly. So a specific example of this for me, a few years ago when I made a list of my values, I had generosity, excellence, and basically, and learning uh, were my top three. And then I did it again the following year and I realized there's something missing here, which is integrity is not on my list. I'd taken it for granted, just as you know, something that I expect. But I'd found myself in a few collaborations where I hadn't necessarily clarified expectations. And then other people didn't follow through on their commitments, and I was really disappointed by it. But they didn't know that I took something as a commitment in the first place. And so that was a prompt for me to say, all right, if I want to have collaborations that are not only more than the sum of the parts in terms of what we produce, but also meaningful in the connection we build. I need to be much more transparent about my expectations at the start of every relationship. And that, that's an example of how a, a life checkup has shifted me. So when I work on a project with someone now, I, I like to have an opening conversation about, let's review our best and worst collaborations. And let's talk about the principles that matter to us when it comes to working with another person. I'm Lisa Leong, and you're listening to This Working Life on ABCRN. I'm talking with organisational psychologist Adam Grant about how we can unlock latent potential at work. All right, let's talk about your sea sponge uh, research, which I found actually truly delightful. (laughs) And I don't think it would occur to many people to think, oh, you know, the phrase, you know, you be a sponge and you sponge up information, right? I don't think anyone would have thought, I know. I'm going to research deeply into sea sponges to see what they're truly like. So what did you find, Adam? Well, first of all, I should say, you know, when I started writing the book, I had a lot of evidence that I wanted to highlight. And then I had to shift into sort of faux journalist mode to find stories to bring the data to life. And I found many examples of people who, you know, who had potential that was clearly hidden and then ended up just smashing other people's expectations and sometimes their own. And as I talked to them, Almost everyone I talked to said, I was a sponge. Mm. And you can only hear a metaphor so many times before you start to wonder, (laughs) is it more than a metaphor? So I thought, okay, kitchen sponges are boring. (laughs) Let's go to the original sponge, the sea sponge. So I spent a couple of weeks uh, reading about the science of sea sponges. This is a a tour of marine biology I never thought I I would get to do. But I learned that the way I thought about sponges was actually incomplete. So I thought about absorptive capacity, basically, that sponges are great at taking things in, and I thought that's what what makes us all great at learning. But what I discovered was the other key feature of a sea sponge is it has a finely tuned filter. So what it's trying to do is suck up everything in, in its environment, but then keep nutrients in and expel harmful particles out. And I think we forget to do this as humans. I think we could be more like sea sponges because some of us just don't take anything in at all. You know, our egos are too fragile. And so we, we basically close ourselves off to learning from other people who might have ideas about how we can improve. And then others, we have the opposite problem. We absorb everything. And we don't realize that not all critics are thinking critically. Not all critics are speaking constructively. And so I think developing a filter to keep out useless information is every bit as important as uh, being able to absorb all the information that might be available to you. What's your advice then for how we might harness this sponge-like behavior ourselves? How do we filter better? Well, I think what we need to do is we need to take our critics and our cheerleaders and turn them into coaches. 
So I think too many of us end up sort of, we ask for feedback and we have cheerleaders who applaud our best self. We have critics who attack our worst self and neither is that useful. What we actually need are coaches who see our hidden potential and are invested in helping us become a better version of ourself. So how do you get people to coach you as opposed to just cheerlead or criticize? Well, what research suggests is that it's actually better to seek advice than feedback. If you ask people for feedback, they look backward and they tell you either what you did right or what you did wrong. It may not be actionable. It might make you defensive. It might make you complacent. When you ask for advice, people look forward. They give you a constructive suggestion for what you can do differently next time. And then you can immediately run with that and start testing it out and figuring out whether it's relevant to you. So I think that is where I would start. Hi, my name is Megumi Miki. I run my own consulting and coaching facilitation business. So in high school, I by then I had moved around across three countries with eight different schools, Canada, Japan and Australia. And I went to the careers counsellor as I was starting year 12. And the career counsellor said, oh, you probably shouldn't do maths. And I thought I might be able to do it. So I said, no, I'm just going to do it. <laughs> and so, and then I worked really hard. I, this is my tendency. I get a little bit stubborn when somebody tells me I can't do something. <laughs> so I decided I'll do it and I'm going to really do it well. And um, yeah, I, get top, I got top marks for it. So I was very proud. But I had a contrasting experience of being believed in when I didn't believe in myself. I was working at ANZ and they were going through a major cultural transformation program. This is in the 2000s. And I was uh, overwhelmingly drawn to this work. And so when the call came out about they wanted some internal consultants and facilitators, I thought, oh, I'd love to do that. And so I put my hand up, I put in my application, but then I realised all the other applicants were people with experience in that sort of work, in facilitation and in coaching and leadership and culture. By that time, my most of my work was around finance and uh, strategy. And so I didn't really have that um, experience or training to do this sort of work. But something in me just said, just put it in and see what happens. And um, I didn't think I did that well. So I didn't, I actually didn't think I would get the role. And when I got the call, I thought, you're kidding. <laughs> I was so humbled and delighted because that actually changed the trajectory of my career. For me, it was firstly, like somebody believed in me, even though I didn't believe in myself. And that was huge because at the time I didn't, really think that I had it in me, even though I was so drawn to it. So it was just simply my passion and interest and curiosity that drove me to apply as opposed to believing I could do it. And so for someone to see something in me, and, and it almost felt like somebody saw me. Hi, my name is Sibber Deeker. I'm an investment manager with a litigation funder. Um, I'm about a 15-year lawyer. When I was in grade eight, I took legal studies as a subject and my legal studies teacher told me not to bother trying because I was not smart enough to get into university. I obviously didn't listen to her and became 
a pretty successful lawyer. Certainly what I found the most beneficial in my career was having a mentor, you know, someone that little bit more senior than me that kind of looked out for you, pushed you to take opportunities that potentially thought you, you know, wouldn't be able to do yourself. Um, So just having that career mentor that believes in you. And I think that's what's really benefited me in my career. Adam, you use a building metaphor to explain how we can be best supported by others while reaching our full potential. Tell me about this. So think about a construction crew. Initially, they need scaffolding to be able to work on a higher part of the building. And the building can't stand if that scaffolding is not in place. But then at some point, you remove the support and the building is able to stand on its own. We want mentors to do the same thing. I think everybody knows that mentors are critical to career growth and success. But we don't realize you don't need the same person to do everything. If you study development, it actually turns out that people who have multiple mentors make better progress and are more likely to get promoted than people who have a single mentor. Why is this? I think one obvious factor is it's hard to find one person who knows everything that you need to know. A second, probably equally obvious consideration is that it's hard to get the time and attention from one person to learn everything you want to know. But I think the third and much more interesting and important factor is that a really great mentor does not want you to be dependent on them. So instead of giving you permanent support and saying, look, I'm going to spend the next 30 years developing you and grooming you to be successful, they want to provide support that's much more temporary, that allows you to scale new heights on your own. So psychologists think about this as scaffolding. What we want are a group of mentors who can provide initial guidance, advice, instruction on a skill, And then as you start to gain competence, they back away and allow you to guide your own learning. And that that seems to be better for people to unlock their hidden potential than just leaning on the same mentor over and over again for years at a time. And so are we ourselves thinking, this is the scaffolding I need, and then I'll find a person, a mentor who might be able to help me build that scaffolding? I think that's one way to think about it. The other way would be to say, let me, let me go to somebody that I admire who's a few steps ahead of me in my career and they may know what scaffolding I need and I haven't even realized it yet. Lisa, th- th- I think this goes to another mistake that we make when you know, we seek out mentoring and coaching. Uh, most people think I've got to go to the best expert or the biggest superstar. But if you look at the evidence, it turns out that sometimes the best doers are the worst teachers especially with the basics. Yes. <laughs> Maybe you've lived this. Um, my favorite example is Einstein. You would not want to take your intro physics class with Einstein. He knew too much. Mm. And it probably came too easily to him for him to be able to really make sense of it for you, uh, which is why he, he struggled so much to attract students that he had to cancel his class. I think the person that you want is somebody who also struggled a little bit. Someone who is not 30 years ahead in the journey, but three or four years ahead in the journey so that they can remember what it's like to be in your shoes. People might be listening to this and thinking, yes, um, that all sounds really great, Adam, but actually (laughs) I work really hard, you know, just to get through. There's a daily grind to the way in which I'm practicing and becoming better in my career. Um, You share a bit of an antidote to this, which is deliberate play. And you use uh, the beautiful example of percussionist Dame Evelyn Glennie. Do you want to weave in her story with this idea of transforming from daily grind to play? 
Sure. So as, as Evelyn was trying to develop her skills, she watched a lot of her peers doing just drills and scales over and over again, which is a great way to burn out. And even before you get to burnout, the monotony can actually lead to what psychologists call bore out. I am literally bored out of my mind. That's no way to sustain motivation. That's no way to keep getting better. So Evelyn decided that she was going to mix things up. When she got bored on the drums, she would shift over to a different instrument just to keep things fresh. So she was always adding novelty and variety to her routine. And when psychologists study practice, they find that the best thing you can do is to take the daily grind and turn it into a source of daily joy. Thanks to my guest, organizational psychologist and author, Adam Grant. Thank you. And thanks to Megumi Miki, Sibadika, and Ali Kalali for sharing their stories. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening to This Working Life. It's produced by Zoe Ferguson and mixed by Tim Jenkins. This episode was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Until next time, work it, baby. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.